0: Living on Earth relies on your generosity to broadcast each week. Please donate now at LOE.org.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The next round of UN Talks to Try to Fight Climate Change kicks off in Doha this month. Superstorm Sandy may add a new urgency, and perhaps the way we build and live in our cities could be
2: part of the solution. I believe that walkable urbanism, the building of great walkable places, will be the number one way we're going to address climate change.
1: Also, the problems biologists face trying to track down the animals they research, especially when they're well camouflaged.
3: Like when you see them in the field, you have to look really hard to make sure that This is not a twig. And they stay still so perfectly that you'd have to wait to see them move and really realize there's a lizard there.
1: We'll have lizards and a lot more this week on Living on Earth.
3: Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Talks open in Doha Gutter for the 18th round of the UN climate change negotiations at the end of this month. But as nations from around the world come together, climate change projections are increasingly dire, and few express hope for a broad consensus. One veteran observer of many rounds of these talks is Jennifer Morgan. She is the director of the Climate and Energy Program at the World Resources Institute and is their lead representative at the upcoming meeting in Doha starting November 26th. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Good to be here. So what's this session of the climate negotiations all about?
5: Well, this session is actually a finalizing the rules session, Uh, not as exciting or big bang of a meeting as previous years. But I think certainly people are hoping that ambition will also be on the table because not enough is happening right now.
1: So, as they say, though, the devil is in the details. Uh, What's likely to get done and where are things likely to get stuck?
5: So, in the details, you have, number one, the Kyoto Protocol. Kyoto is important because it has institutions that people care about. It has a carbon market. It has a fund for developing countries. And those things need to stay and be part of a bigger package in a couple of years. And uh, countries like the EU and Australia are ready to move forward with the Kyoto Protocol, but they have to decide how long does the Kyoto Protocol last. That's one big detail or, for example, within the finance side of things, the fast-start finance countries have pledged money for up to this year. What happens after that? That's less of a detail and more of a fundamental thing. Is there new money on the table for developing countries to deal with the impacts of climate change?
1: Back in 2009, President Obama, other world leaders uh, agreed on this Green Climate Fund, which, what, promised $100 billion a year in financial aid to developing countries? The world economy is still pretty sluggish. What's happening with the Green Climate Fund? Uh, You indicated it's coming to the end of its first round of cash.
5: Countries in Copenhagen pledged funds for up to 2012. But there's a lot of uncertainty in between now of a $30 billion number and how to get to $100 billion by 2020. And so that's the question. Will countries say that they'll keep it at the same levels or increase it? And certainly in an economic downturn, that's difficult. But some countries like Germany seem to be ready to move forward. And developing countries will certainly be looking for at least the same level of support that they've had.
1: The U.N. climate change conferences have become uh, a magnet for criticism. Uh, They get labeled as antiquated, cumbersome, unproductive. Jennifer Morgan, from your perspective, what have these talks done? And what alternatives do we have to this U.N. process?
5: Well, I think... The talks have brought countries together and set a long-term goal of staying below two degrees temperature rise. I don't think that would have happened without the United Nations. I think they've catalyzed further domestic action. Many of the pledges that came forward over the last years from China and India and the United States, I am not sure would have happened without the UN Framework Convention.
1: Where is China in all of this? Uh, I understand that the uh, government there is looking to install a 30% renewable electricity uh, portfolio standard by the year 2015, which would put it ahead of the U.S. in this process.
5: Well, China has taken quite substantial actions domestically, and in some cases more than the United States. Uh, They have a strong renewable energy target. They have capped coal use uh, in some places. They have strong efficiency targets. I don't expect anything new from them for some time because they're in a transition, but certainly domestic forces are showing they're taking the issue uh, seriously.
1: What are the marching orders that the White House is likely to have given uh, the U.S. delegation uh, for Doha? And what effect, if any, do you think Superstorm Sandy will have on the American approach?
5: Well, I don't think we know yet. Uh, I think the hope is is that the White House will give, uh, in some ways, a mandate to the delegation to press the restart button on its international climate diplomacy and that the U.S. will go to Doha with a much clearer strategy and say, you know, we do want to keep global temperatures below 2 degrees. We hear and actually are now experiencing what the impacts of climate change look like And so the hope, I think, would be clarity on this long-term goal. How is the U.S. going to meet its 17% target he signed up for for a couple years ago? They haven't made that clear yet to the world. And also, just a clear statement, we're in this. We're not only starting a national conversation, as President Obama said, but we're moving into an international coalition building to really solve this problem. Thus far, it's been more incremental tactics. I think the world is looking for the big strategy and leadership.
1: Jennifer, I'm thinking that what what we're seeing here, what we saw saw in New Jersey, uh, New York, Connecticut, is what the small island states have been seeing all along. How are they feeling about these negotiations?
5: Oh, I think the island states are feeling quite desperate, to be clear. They are not the type of ship or signals that other countries are really taking this seriously. And I guess that's really the question for the developed countries around the world or the major economies. Will they start acting more like the island nations now? Will they understand more what's at stake and be willing to take the political risk that it needs to get this job done? Because otherwise, those island nations and many areas, low-lying areas around the world will have a short future
1: jennifer morgan is director of the climate and energy program at the world resources institute in washington thanks for talking with us jennifer thank you legend has it that the aztecs founded mexico city in the fourteenth century ordered by one of their many gods to build a city where they found an eagle perched on a cactus with a snake in its beak. That eagle turned out to be on an island surrounded by a lake. Over the centuries, the Aztecs and later the Spanish conquerors filled in the lake and built a city that today is home to more than 21 million people. The buildings are famously sinking into the filled land, and a more visible problem plagues Latin America's biggest city, trash. Many landfills are at capacity and rubbish is piling up in the streets. So the city government has developed a unique way to deal with it. Tom Wainwright is the Mexico Central America correspondent for The Economist magazine and joins us on Skype. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So, how significant is the trash problem in Mexico City?
6: Well, it came to a head earlier this year when the city government shut down one of its biggest uh, trash dumps, which was just on the edge of the city. This was a huge place that had, until recently, been receiving thousands of tons of trash every single day. And it was about the size of 450 football pitches. But they shut this down just towards the end of last year. And so around the beginning of this year, these great big heaps of, uh, of trash started piling up every, in every corner of the city because the, uh, the city authorities just didn't know how to get rid of it. They've solved that problem for the time being, but there's no doubt that unless they can change something fairly fundamental, uh, the trash problem is going to continue in Mexico City.
1: I understand now that the government of Mexico City is offering people carrots, literally, to start <laughs> recycling their trash. Can you tell me about that?
6: That's right. They've got this new thing that they call a barter market, which takes place in one of the parks in the center of town every month. And you can go along with your recyclable trash, so your glass, your metal, your paper, your plastic, all of this stuff. And you hand it in, and in return they give you what they call green points or green tokens. And with those tokens you can buy, uh, as you say, vegetables, fruit, plants, all kinds of things in return for your rubbish. So people are going along with their weekly household waste and uh, going home with a, a bag full of vegetables to have for lunch.
1: So how much food has been exchanged for trash so far?
6: So far, they've got through about 140 tons worth of, uh, of trash, which is a small proportion of the amount that the city produces every day. Um, but nonetheless, they've got rid of all this, uh, this rubbish, and they've swapped it for about 60 tons of fruits and vegetables.
1: And once the government has all this trash, what do they do with it?
6: Well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, the message that the government is very keen to give people is that what you think is trash isn't necessarily worthless. And they put that idea into practice by selling all this recyclable waste to companies who can convert it into into new things. So, for instance, the paper that they have, they sell to companies that can mash it up and turn it into new paper, and they do the same thing with the glass and with the metal and and with all the things they receive. And so every month they take about 20 tons of trash and they sell this waste for about $3,000, which doesn't completely cover the cost of the vegetables, but it goes quite a long way towards it.
1: So you say they get about $3,000 from the recyclables, and it costs more for the food. How much more for the food, and how would that compare to the cost of having to, to gather this stuff up or find more landfill space?
6: The amount that they spend every month on the food it comes to almost double what they make in selling the rubbish. So every month they make about $3,000 from selling this recyclable trash, and they spend about $6,000 on the fruits and vegetables. So the project is making a loss. It's not intended to be a money-making project. But the government sees it as a, a sort of educational mission. (laughs) And they reckon that at the net cost of $3,000 or so per month, that's not too bad a price to pay for educating a city of 20 million about the importance of recycling their waste.
1: Obviously, the main purpose here is to encourage recycling, but uh, this is a significant boost for local farmers, you've observed.
6: Well, it is, yeah. In the south of Mexico City, there's this fascinating neighborhood called Xochimilco, which looks a bit like the original city would have done hundreds of years ago before the conquistadors arrived. It's a sort of network of canals. Um, As you said in your introduction, Mexico City used to be an island in the middle of a lake, uh, and this part in the south of the city still resembles uh, what the edge of the lake would have looked like hundreds of years ago. You go down there and... um, It's a network of canals with floating man-made islands on which farmers grow these vegetables. And they make these islands by getting old rotten boats which are about to sink. And they fill them up with uh, mud and with dirt. And they grow vegetables in them.
1: So overall, how do you think this project is working out so far? Uh, To what extent are people recycling? Uh, And what about plans to possibly expand?
6: Well, I think it's going pretty well. I went down there last month uh, with a few old computer cables and things of my own, which I swapped for some carrots and broccoli, I think it was. And even first thing in the morning, it was absolutely jam-packed. People tell me that lines start forming first thing in the morning because people want to get there as early as possible to get the best fruit and vegetables that they can. Uh, apparently, if you go early enough, they even have cheese. But I, I confess I've never been able to get up on time to, uh, <laughs> to be there in time to get any cheese. But it's obviously it's being successful. It's very, very full every month, so much so that they're thinking of expanding the project. And they're also talking about possibly making this a fortnightly project rather than a monthly one. So I think so far it's been pretty successful. There's a political question over it because in December, the new city government takes over. There's a new mayor who's going to be taking over. So the future of the project will depend on what he makes of it. But given the popularity of the project, I think it's likely that we're going to see it expand even more.
1: Tom Wainwright is a reporter for The Economist based in Mexico. Thanks so much, Tom. No, thank you. Just ahead, some old and new ideas to solve the problem of paying for public transportation. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As more and more people move into walkable city centers, public transit ridership is on the rise and under stress. Nowhere is the trend more stark than Boston, home of the nation's first subway system.
7: This morning I was on the 6 a.m. Heath Street train and there was a broken down car ahead of us and we had to get off of three different trains and back on and everyone on the train was late for work. They did a lot of service cuts recently. I feel like they're just short on people or something, I don't know, but it's definitely been way worse than I've experienced in the past few years. I actually waited last week for like
1: half an hour for the Beeline, I think. I saw a bunch of other trains go by and then mine came
7: and it was so full. I just had to wait for the next one, and then the next one was even still pretty full, but I just squeezed my way on, shoved my way on.
1: (laughs) Despite the boom in ridership and recent fare hike, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority is in deep financial trouble, with some routes strained to the breaking point. The combination of debt, operating deficits, long-deferred maintenance, and growing ridership looks like an intractable problem, especially with government's budgets squeezed. But there is a way to finance operations and expansion that taps the profits that transit can bring to business, according to Christopher Leinberger, a George Washington University transportation researcher. He says, think of transit attached to walkable districts as a means of sustainable
2: economic development that then helps pay the transit tab and fights climate change. Transportation, whether it be roads or rail transit or bike lanes, have always been subsidized. The airlines have been around 100 years, and the net profit the airlines have made in that 100 years is zero. The few good years get offset by crushing losses. The question is who pays. We have a situation where the federal government is not going to play its historic role funding a significant amount of mass transit. The state governments are in the same situation, so where does that money come from? And I'm suggesting, and Locus is suggesting, and a lot of developers are suggesting, that we need to learn from how we used to build our transit systems 100 years ago. That This country 100 years ago had the finest rail transit system on the planet, and the vast majority of it was paid for by real estate developers. And it's not as if the economics were different then than now. Those rail transit systems, those trolleys, those subways in New York, lost money. So why did developers build them? They built them to get their customers out to their land. So their land profits subsidized the rail transit. And that's what we're proposing with value capture as well. Value capture is capturing the value that's created by transportation improvements. And it's not as if you can just assume that you know, that developers are going to pay for it all. That's not going to happen. Think of it as a layer cake of different financing sources. Some is going to be from the federal government. Some is going to be from the state government. And some will be from the developers who will commit a portion of their upside, a portion of their profits to help pay off the bonds that build those transit systems. So tell me, how could
1: this concept of value capture work for existing transit systems? I mean, consider Boston, for example. The fare box just pays for the debt, but businesses have been getting
2: the MBTA for free. So why would they now want to pay? Because they can get increased density, possibly, so that you could go to the existing property owners and say, we will zone a higher density for you in exchange we want a piece of that upside to help pay for either the operations of or the capital improvements of the rail system. Let's focus for a moment more on new transit systems. How does
1: value capture work exactly for those new routes of mass transit?
2: With a new system such as the new line that's going out to Tyson's Corner in northern Virginia from downtown D.C., about a third of that cost is being paid for by the property owners at Tyson's. Tyson's, 25 years ago, led the market in D.C., the highest rents, highest absorption. They were the king of the hill. Today, they're near the bottom, and that's because the market wants more walkable, urban, higher-density places. So the Tyson's developers very intelligently said, we have to bring Metro out to Tyson's, and so they taxed themselves to pay for about a third of the cost of that very expensive rail system. Another way is the New York Avenue metro station in D.C. A bunch of developers got together and said, we'd like to build a station. And we so need this station that we're willing to pony up, again, about a third of the cost. And they put the money up front. And I've talked to one of them recently, and he said it was the best investment he's ever made, because that money and that metro station increased the value of his land so much that he made a phenomenal return on that investment. What about Boston? Uh, Boston wants to extend its green line uh, from
1: the Leachmere area out into Somerville. How could value capture work for that new route?
2: Well, there's a number of new developments that are being proposed along that green line, and there are some very substantial developers that are proposing it. They, too, could help pay for the stations, and they could also cut a deal with the MBTA, to uh, maybe share a piece of their financial upside to help pay for the operations. Because with transit, you've got both the issue of capital costs and operating costs. Most systems, the operating costs are not even covered by the fare box, and then you have to find separate sources of funding to pay for the capital costs. And that's just the way it is, so we have to deal with that. What's
1: the formula for having this economic success? Uh, If you bring a transit line to a certain place, what needs to be there to get the development that you say can happen?
2: And how critical is walkability? Walkability is driving this. Walkable urban places have a significant price premium over drivable suburban. And so much so that the variability in economic performance About two-thirds of it is explained by how walkable it is. It's a major economic driver. The other two, by the way, happen to be job density and workforce education level, how many people have their college degrees. That explains over 90% of the reason why these walkable urban places perform so well economically. How does Boston move forward? What do you recommend? Think of it as a baseball team. Think of it as the Boston Red Sox. And the infielders are the walkable urban places, whether they be in the suburbs or in the city. The outfielders are, you know, the 128 drivable suburban places. They're both important, but you have pent-up demand for more walkable urban places, and the market wants a lot of those to be in the suburbs. The center city is growing, and the suburbs are not just not growing, they may be shrinking. The market would love to have those nodes of energy Out in the suburbs as well, and right now in Boston, it's illegal to build high-density walkable urban places around your uh, subway stations and around your uh, commuter rail lines. And oh, by the way, I believe that walkable urbanism, the building of great walkable places, will be the number one way we're going to address climate change. You may remember two years ago, it was legal in Washington to talk about climate change. But 99% of the discussion was about supply efficiency. Very important topic as far as renewables, as far as increased efficiency of our cars. But the other side is demand mitigation, providing places to live that by their very nature do not require the burning of fossil fuels. We've known for a long time that of climate change gases... About 75% of them are generated by either buildings or the transportation systems we use to get between our buildings. More research needs to be done to uh, confirm this. But if you move a drivable suburban household out there on the fringes of Boston into Cambridge and they move into a townhouse or into a condo, you will reduce their household energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions by between 50 and 75%. So with that huge reduction in the built environment, this could conceivably be the number one way we're going to address climate change.
1: Christopher Leinberger is a professor at George Washington University and president of LOCUS, part of Smart Growth Development. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Just ahead, how function creates form, at least among lizards. But first, this note on emerging science from Annabelle Ford.
7: The peacock mantis shrimp can grow up to 7 inches and is brightly polka dotted. And while the shrimp doesn't seem particularly intimidating, researchers have discovered that it packs a surprising punch. Scientists at the University of California, Riverside clocked the speed of the shrimp's bright orange club-like arm at 50 miles per hour underwater. That's the fastest punch for any living animal on record. It can crush its prey with a force greater than a thousand times its own weight and break through exoskeletons of crabs and other crustaceans known for their impact-resistant shells. The super-strong shrimp even needs to be housed in special quarters in the lab since its fist could break through a standard aquarium tank. The key to the peacock mantis shrimp's power is threefold. The arm's top layer is composed of high mineral concentration and is reinforced by a shock-absorbing web of fibers underneath. A third layer of fibers encapsulates the entire club, keeping it intact during hits. These layers create an incredibly strong, resilient, and lightweight weapon. Researchers plan on copying the shrimp's design to improve military armor. Soldiers currently lug about 30 pounds of protective equipment with them. Scientists hope to reduce that weight by two-thirds and increase the gear's durability. It's said that size doesn't matter. Well. The peacock mantis shrimp is living proof that a small arm can bring big changes to a weighty problem. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Annabelle Ford.
1: One of the most powerful pieces of evidence that helped Charles Darwin formulate his theory of evolution was the way species changed when isolated on different islands. In Darwin's case, it was finches. But as Ari Daniel Shapiro reports, the same kinds of changes can be found among species of lizards
0: in different parts of the Americas. Rosario Castaneda can't get her one-gallon jar to open. Do you want me to help? Yeah, please. The lid won't budge. Duh, boy. Until finally... Ugh. The jar is brimming with ethanol, and submerged in that preservative are half a dozen lizards the size of turkey basters. They're called anoles. And in this story, we're going to use anoles to talk about ecomorphology. That is, the relationship between how organisms use their environment and the way their bodies have evolved.
3: Let's get one of these out.
0: Castaneda, an evolutionary biologist here at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, uses a pair of long tweezers to pull an anole out of the ethanol. She has the preserved anole by the belly. The lizard's a dark chocolate brown. It came all the way from Cuba, where it lived up in the forest canopy.
3: They can actually move into like really small branches, proportional to their body sizes. The other thing is that they have, with these really large heads, they eat larger prey and harder prey as well. Like what? Beetles, things are a little bit crunchier.
0: This anole belongs to a species called Anolis equestris. Then Castaneda pops open a much smaller jar, which contains anolis occultus from Puerto Rico. It's tiny, about the size of a twig, which is no coincidence. Occultus lives on small twigs, and they're masters of camouflage.
3: Like when you see them in the field, you, you have to look really hard to make sure that this is not a twig. And they stay still so perfectly that you'd have to wait to see them move and really realize there's a lizard there.
0: Castaneda leads me into the anol collection at the museum. The shelves are filled with jars of anoles of all shapes and sizes. Many of these specimens come from the Caribbean where you find not just big anoles like Equestris in the forest canopy and little ones like occultus clinging to tree twigs, but also mid-sized ones living only on the trunks of trees and others that split their time, scuttling between the base of the trunk and the forest floor and nowhere else.
3: So you have a huge diversity in What it it would look at the beginning as a single habitat.
0: Namely, a single tree. But for an anole, a tree is made up of half a dozen different microhabitats. And the various types of anoles have adapted accordingly, over and over again. Take the big anoles. They scamper about the forest canopies on all the Caribbean islands, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Hispaniola, but they're not the same anole. Each island has a different species of big anole up in the canopy, and each island has a different species of little anole on the twigs, and so on. The anoles have repeatedly evolved in more or less the same way throughout the Caribbean, on every island. It's an example of ecomorphology, again, that's where a variety of habitats reliably produce the same spectrum of body shapes. Castaneda studies anoles in South America. She's looking for a pattern, maybe one that's similar to the Caribbean. The first step was establishing who's related to who, so she set out to collect anole DNA. She always collected at night. Unlike in the Caribbean, where you can't help but see lizards.
3: Lizards everywhere.
0: In South America, there are far fewer.
3: During the day, you'll hardly see them. So it would be easier to go at night because at night they sleep over leaves. So when you flash them with the light, they look whitish over the background of the green leaf.
0: Then she moves a little loop on the end of a fishing rod into position.
3: Then you'll pass the loop around the head of the lizard, and then you'll grab your lizard.
0: Through the DNA work, Castaneda's found that within each species of anole in South America, there can be a lot of physical variation.
3: Variations in size and number of scales and coloration.
0: Now she's moved on to measuring the anoles, the length of their bodies and their legs, for example. She'll try to match those characteristics with their habitats and see if there's any evidence for ecomorphology. But already things look different than the Caribbean. She's found South American anoles living near water or on boulders and rocks, and they don't match anything that's been reported before. Even the ones living in the trees look different.
3: Species that you would expect would have... Longer tails, they have shorter tails, or things like that.
0: Any one of a number of reasons could have steered anole evolution in a different direction on the South American mainland. Maybe the snakes and birds snacking on the anoles attack differently. Or maybe the habitats are just plain different. Castaneda spends half her time working her way through this puzzle. The rest of the time, she earns her keep as a fellow for the Encyclopedia of Life, a website that devotes a separate webpage to every creature on the planet, and it supports this series, by the way is in charge of the annel pages.
3: The idea is to get people to compile high-quality data on species. So you know that whatever you're reading on Encyclopedia of Life, somebody that really knows about the topic is writing that.
0: is working on all the annel species.
3: There are roughly 385 species.
0: As for how many she's done?
3: Complete, like five at this point.
0: Only 380 jars to go. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Our story about the anoles was reported by Ari
1: Daniel Shapiro for the series One Species at a Time. It's produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. Check out the pictures at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, some stellar
4: words of advice for President Obama in his second term from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. (coughs) than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the
5: sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman.
1: Well, it's not actually Superman, but it is super astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson.
8: (laughs) I don't stop or jump tall buildings. I take the elevator. (laughs) Neil
1: deGrasse Tyson is director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and now a comic
8: book character. Well, what happened was a DC Comics called up and they wanted one of their installments to involve Superman visiting the Hayden Planetarium. So ostensibly, all they really wanted was permission to sort of represent the museum and the planetarium in the comic. And then from there, it kind of grew. And they said, well... Can we draw you showing him his home star on the dome? You know, this is Superman, right? So of course we have got to say yes to that. You know, had it been Aquaman or Elastic Man, no, <laughs> it's got to be. Not even, you know, you, not well, even Spider Man, huh? Maybe Spider Man, but you got to rank your superheroes in this regard. Otherwise, you know, how would how how would you? allocate your time in any sensible way.
1: Superman's home planet, which was Krypton, it blows up as he's flying away as a baby. So how's he going to see it blow up from the Hayden Planetarium?
8: This is where the plot thickens. As the story tells it, he has come every year to the Hayden Planetarium to look at planet Krypton orbiting his host star. Now, the only way that can happen is if he arrived through a wormhole, So, remember, he's launched as a baby, kind of Moses-style, right, in a basket, and then he arrives as a baby. So, in his life, hardly any time had elapsed. Now, the way to get him here sooner than the edge of light that's carrying the information that Krypton exploded would be to get him here in a wormhole. So, every year he's been observing Krypton, except this one particular occasion, where it's about 27 years later, and he's in his late 20s, and... When he was born, Krypton was destroyed. So this particular visit to the Hayden Planetarium, he's in for uh, a sad moment. And that moment, of course, being... Spoiler alert here. He observes the destruction of Krypton. So if it was only I I help him observe this for this melancholy moment, then it's just, you know, they're representing me and, you know, with my vest, you know, my trademark vest and all of this. And that's kind of cool... However, it was more than that. I said, you know, I could probably find a real star that's 27 light years away, that's red, just like Superman's home star. So let me comb the catalogs, as I did. Found them a star. Its official title is LHS 2520, if you're taking notes. And it's in the constellation Corvus. That's uh, Latin for the crow, visible from the southern hemisphere. And not only that... Those of you who are Superman aficionados will know that in Smallville, his high school mascot was the crow. So you combine all of this together, and it makes not only for an interesting sort of sad chapter in Superman's life, but there's some science infused, actual science infused in that storytelling. And I was delighted to be able to assist them in this effort.
1: So let me just review the science. So the, uh, the hypothesis here is, is that Superman as a baby travels through a wormhole, which goes much faster than the speed of light. But to see his natal planet, uh, ordinary light is what he uses. So it's 27 light years away, and that means that by the time he's
8: 27, he gets to see it blow up. Exactly, and it turns out we don't know how to observe planets in that detail using sort of visible light, and so you need like a Mondo interferometer where you combine many different telescopes across the width of the Earth, which then enables the width of the Earth to act like it is a single telescope dish that's that size. And when you have a telescope that's using techniques called interferometry – and by the way, they use that word in the comic. I was like, it was so cool. Whoa. (laughs) Using actual astrophysics terminology there. And so when you combine the telescopes that way, which we don't really know how to do yet, you can get an image that high enough resolution to watch Krypton destroyed. So Superman uses – he like stares at the computer, and his superpowers help the computer calculate this image. And so it's another invocation of his powers in order to tell this story. What what I didn't know is that several episodes a year, DC Comics introduces key personal elements in Superman's life that are worthy of press releases. And this was one such episode. It's Action Comics number 14. Action Comics number 14. Okay. To see super astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and Superman (laughs) together. And I got to tell you, I spoke to the illustrator and I said, you know, if it makes no difference one way or another, it doesn't matter. Could you like trim a few pounds off my (laughs) waist? If if there's no difference to you? And they said, Dr. Tyson, this is the comics. Everybody looks good. (laughs) So I come out from the back room rolling up my sleeves looking buff. And so that was cool.
1: Now, there are some other developments uh, in space. uh, That That there always are. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about and there's something that I never heard of, a rogue planet.
8: Oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't know about the rogue planets. No. Well, we didn't even think to think of these things until our models of the formation of the solar system showed us that if you start out with a star and a collapsing gas cloud making surrounding planets, you can make planets in all kinds of places— in orbit around the host star, but not all those places are orbitally stable. And what we found is the solar system itself might have started with two, three dozen planets and depending on where their orbits are relative to other planets they might not maintain a stable forever orbit around their host star and they can end up getting flung into interstellar space. And when this happens they become rogue planets, homeless planets. Now, what makes it interesting is some planets still have heat left over from when they formed. Mm-hmm. Jupiter still has heat left over. Actually, it's generating heat because it's slowly collapsing. And so it actually radiates more heat than it receives from the sun. And, of course, Earth has all this heat from its geologic activity. We've got this magma sitting below the crust and volcanic activity. That heat, that energy has is not traceable to the sun. That's born here on Earth. So you can imagine flinging a planet out to interstellar space and still have energy there that could possibly sustain life. So it's been hypothesized that maybe most life in the universe is found on rogue planets where they don't even need a star. And we're pretty sure that there are more rogue planets than planets that are in happy stable orbits around host stars. What if they're headed this way? Sure, but space is, is really empty, and so you're worried that one is going to be on a collision course with Earth. I suppose, in principle, that's possible. But the sun's gravity and Jupiter's gravity is so much greater than Earth's gravity that they're going to do most of the redirecting of what goes on and what comes near the solar system. So we have our, our big brother protectors out there in the schoolyard. Make sure the rogue planets don't mess with us. <laughs> that's the bully planets coming <laughs> through. <laughs>
1: Now, uh, there's something else out there that has astrophysicists excited. Uh, There's a super hot gas cloud headed
8: for a black hole. What does that mean and what's likely to happen? Well, black holes are only rendered visible in the galaxy and in the rest of the universe because they're black, right? So how do you even know they're there? And one way we detect them is they dine upon anything that comes too close it could be gas clouds, it could be entire stars. In fact, one of the sort of the classical ways to detect a black hole is the black hole used to be a star, a full red blooded star that died and the black hole is is its death state. And it was in orbit around another star, which is still alive. And stars in their later stages get big and fat. They become red giants. And their outer layers would then become flayed by the black hole that's in orbit around it. And it's the descent of this gas down to the center of the black hole that ends up getting heated and radiates profusely at very high temperatures, so high that it's radiating ultraviolet and X-rays. And so the very first black holes ever discovered were discovered with X-ray telescopes. Ah. It's a whole different window to what's going on in the universe if you put on X-ray eyes. And so if you know in advance that a gas cloud is approaching a black hole, then get ready for the fireworks because it's going to be a scrumptious (laughs) meal for the black hole soon to come. Tell me more about this uh, black hole. Isn't this now in the Milky Way? And if so, what might we be able to see? What we're bracing for is at the point a black hole eats anything, typically it is revealed by what this stuff does, whatever be the material, a gas cloud or even an, an entire star. As it descends into the black hole, it becomes ferociously hot before it crosses over into the event horizon where it's gone forever. But just before then, the act of descending into the black hole generates heat. And that heat renders the material visible to an X-ray and ultraviolet telescope. So what you get ready to do is you prepare your X-ray telescopes, line them up, and just watch the fireworks unfold. We won't be able to see anything from our back porch, huh? Oh, you want to see a black hole eat something from your back porch? I'm sorry, can't (laughs) help you there.
1: (laughs) Um, I want to bring you a little closer to Earth now, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. In the wake of Superstorm Sandy, a lot of people were so impressed by the accuracy of the satellite projections, you know, being able to spot the storm and the path nine days in advance. But I understand that the satellite that we relied on in that storm was actually a backup.
8: Uh, What's going on with the satellite fleet that's up there that seems to be aging? Yeah, so they're aging. A lot of the satellites were launched in the so conceived and then launched in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Satellites don't live forever. So there's the natural life cycle of satellites. That's not what the concern is. The concern is if the satellites go through their life cycle and you don't have ones to replace them, then what started out as this major effort to monitor the various atmospheric and oceanic conditions on Earth so you can create accurate weather prediction models, if you're not replacing them at the rate that they were first put up there, then your capacity to monitor Earth fades. So there's an interesting sort of impasse here. Everyone thinks of NASA as these are the people who go into space. And we think of orbiting Earth as space. And so therefore, weather satellites are the purview of NASA. Well, I kind of view the world differently. I think NASA should be an agency that expands a space frontier right? Go someplace tomorrow that we haven't been today. That's, I think, what NASA should be. And you have other organizations like NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which they're tasked with monitoring the Earth. All they do now is sort of get the data from these NASA-launched weather satellites, but maybe a whole organization should be tuned and tooled just for this purpose. And that way you let NASA continue to extend a space frontier, re-trick out NOAA, which would be very hard at this point because it's not what they do. They don't build satellites. They don't have labs. They don't have designers and engineers to do this. But if you did, then you'd have an entire agency whose task it is to monitor Earth. And maybe we're long overdue for that. And then, yeah, they'll say, we need more satellites. And you wouldn't be competing the funding for an Earth satellite with a Mars rover. There'd be separate concerns, which in fact they are. So,
1: the problem has been this uh, financial competition, and you know NASA being a place of uh, of exploratory science, they have not been willing to to make enough noise to be sure that the weather satellites are replaced. Is that what you're telling? Well, me?
8: yeah, you're right. There are many things competing for money in the limited budget of NASA's portfolio. So, if you want NASA to do it, then fund it at that level. Uh, this is not a hard problem to solve. But if you're not going to fund it at that level, then Peter is getting robbed to pay Paul. By the way, it's not just how good is your picture of the satellite that's moving, you know, from one municipality to the next. It's what are the surface temperatures of the land and the, and the ocean and, you know, observe the Earth in infrared, in visible light, in, in these other bands where Earth might be trying to tell you something. And if you're missing that branch of data, your model cannot then be correct because the model may depend on this. Then there's the heating from the sun. Is it reflecting off the clouds? Is it going to the earth? Is it being trapped by your carbon dioxide? What's reflected back from the glaciers? How much glaciers do you have left? It's a hugely complex problem, and you need as many satellites up there as, as you possibly can. Can and We have less money being spent on weather satellites today than we did 20 years ago, so that's a problem.
1: So, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, President Obama, of course, got a second term. So what do you think that might mean for space funding, for NASA funding
8: going ahead? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I haven't seen an official document, but I know there's pressure on him to actually go back to the damn moon. (laughs) So excuse my language. What he did in his first term, and I was at the speech. It sounded great, and everyone applauded it until you reflect on the consequences of it. What he said was— Uh, We don't need to go back to the moon. We've been there already. Let's set our sights farther away. Let's go to Mars. Let's go to asteroids. This is the first time I'd ever heard a president speak at that length about deep space. So it sounded great. It sounded visionary. And then I thought about it, and I said, well, wait a minute. We have, like, thousands of people right now, engineers, planning on going to the moon, building spacecraft to enable this. So what happens to them? Well, they lose their jobs. They lost their jobs. And so I kind of want to demonstrate again that we know how to get there. It's been 40 years since we've been to the moon. And you can get to the moon in three days. That makes a nice media cycle, right? We can, like, track them as they go and how you doing and, you know, what music are you listening to? And so that becomes a a very sellable trip, I think, to the American people. That way you reinvigorate a near-term space plan. This – let's go to Mars. Oh, when? In the 2030s. Well, excuse me. That's like under the leadership of a president to be named later on a budget not yet established. So I'm concerned when a president promises something that they never have to actually shepherd. Have a nice day. I'm just saying. (laughs) You know, I mean we we live in a free country and you vote for who you want. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. But I will tell you the consequences of certain actions or – in actions that are in progress. And the country belongs to we, the people, last I checked, all right? And so to say, well, what's Obama going to do? It's what we want to do. He works for us. Congress works for us. So I don't have the attitude. I wonder if this leader will take us back into space. You want to go to space? Vote that way create the imperative that the lawmakers then must follow. Otherwise, they simply get voted out of power.
1: Neil deGrasse Tyson is a director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York. And uh, his latest work is a DVD entitled The Inexplicable Universe, Part of the Great Courses. Thanks so much for being on the show, Neil. Thanks for having
8: me. Oh, and by the way, also if you're interested, I also tweet the universe. The really more, like, Cosmic brain droppings, but if you're interested, I tweet at Neil Tyson. So uh, check it out if you have nothing better to do with the free time of your day. All right, we're all at Twitter. <laughs>
1: Before this year's Thanksgiving, with its groaning tables and groaning stomachs, has disappeared over the memory horizon, we offer this short poem from writer Rod Clark. Among all his festive preparations, he turned his attention, not to food, but to the horizon over his Wisconsin farmhouse. So I asked the guy down at the sunset shop,
8: what do you have in a soft evening cranberry? We need it for the walk in the woods, twixt pie and gravy-blessed bird.
4: And he said, Sorry, sir, we're out of that.
3: But what would you say to a tangerine sun plunging through pale pumpkin skies to the dark meat of the hills?
1: Rod Clark lives and writes on a small farm in Cambridge, Wisconsin. He's editor and publisher of Rosebud magazine. On the next Living on Earth, simple energy-saving options are being introduced on college campuses. We've saved the university millions and millions of dollars, millions and millions of kilowatt-hours therms terms of gas and carbon emissions. How LED lights, easy transit, and passive solar buildings are paying off. That's next time on Living on Earth. Is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Ellen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page.
4: It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. Makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund and PAX World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. PAX World for tomorrow.